0: Are we known for the right things? Are we as as Christians known for for the right stuff, not not the wrong stuff? One of the issues that our culture has today with with the church is that they perceive, our culture perceives Christians and the church to be a bunch of hypocrites, overly concerned with politics, angry, racist, greedy, bigoted, small-minded, They think Christians are anti-intellectual, they believe that Christians are anti-scientific, and the list could go on and on and on. That's the reputation that many in the world have about followers of Jesus today. And in some ways, I think they're right. Our reputation isn't unjustified. But How different is our reputation today from the reputation of the early church in the first and second centuries? One Roman governor of the region of Bithia, his name is Pliny the Younger, at about 112 A.D., he wrote to the Roman emperor Trajan, his friend, because he had a perplexing problem. In his community, all the the marketplaces were really facing an economic shortfall. And the reason was because these marketplaces were selling idols and the things of worship in the temples of the gods and goddesses. And all of a sudden, that industry kind of dries up. People are beginning to follow this thing called the way. They're, they're called Christians, and they quit going to the marketplaces and buying idols to worship, meats to offer to idols, and so there's a money problem. And, and Pliny is uh, charged with dealing with it. So he, he goes and he rounds up some Christians, and he's very unfamiliar with Christianity himself. He doesn't know quite what the deal is. He rounds some up. He begins to torture some. He grabs some women out of the group, out of the Christian group, or deaconesses, and, and interrogates them. And he wants to know, what's at the heart of this Christian thing? What are they doing? And it just, it just boggles his mind. So he doesn't know quite, when he gets the report back, he doesn't quite know what to do with them. So he writes to Trajan, and he says, let me tell you about these Christians. He says they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. And they, they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. And, and they bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud or theft or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which it was their custom to separate and then to reassemble and to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. It's Like this Christian group, they're weird. They, they get together, they sing, they worship a Christ like he's God. They, they vow not to do evil things. They're good people. They... They do all of this and then they separate and then they get back together for a feast, but it's not a it's not an orgy, it's not a crazy over the top feast of drunkenness and rich food, it's just a meal. That's what the the Christians were known for worship, holiness, simplicity. So again, I raise the question, are we known for the right things, or do our behaviors in the world demonstrate the right things according to our faith, or are we making a name for ourselves and really a name for Christ that is far different than what He calls us to be as the church? This question is a huge one that leaves so many in our culture saying, church, why bother? No place for it. As we keep studying 1 Timothy, Paul has been instructing his young leader, Timothy, in in the leadership of the church. He has left Timothy in the city of Ephesus to to put things in order, to charge false teachers to stop teaching falsehoods, to, to hold to the center of the gospel, to be a people of prayer and devotion to the Lord. And so Paul has instructions for Timothy about how the church should be led and ordered. And he's talked about the main thing the church should be devoted to prayer and yet he has to dig in and say listen the reputations of the the men and women in the church in the culture and in the church itself there's some there's some out of alignment issues here there are some things that are not matching the way of christ in the way that the people of the church behave the reputation of the church and the reputation of christ really is at stake so i ask the question are we known for the right things Maybe the deeper question is, what should Christian men and women be known for? What should our behavioral uh, reputation in the world and with one another really look like? Well, in dealing with this text, I'm going to dive right in. I've got 15 pages of notes, so we might be here for a long time today. Buckle up, hang in. (laughs) In in this text this morning, I want us to see that Christian men and women should be known for their gospel-centered behavior. You, you probably, when I read this text, you went, whoa, I came to church on that Sunday? Especially the women here in the room, you're like, ooh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> but Paul's point here, if we could just boil it down to his essence, is that the men and women in the church, Christian men and women, shouldn't be known for the wrong things in the world, but we should be known for our gospel-centered behavior, and we really need to reject the cultural stereotypes that men and women are placed into. Anti-gospel stereotypes that are, that are layered upon us and sometimes that we, that we pick up. So Paul, in this text, he, he addresses the men in the room, as it were. He's instructing Timothy, here's what you need to teach the men to be about, what they should be known for. And, and then Paul says, Timothy, here's what you need to address and teach the women in the church to be known for, what their lives should look like. So I'm going to deal with us as men and women in both parts and walk us through this text together. Let's start with the men, okay? Let's start. With what should we be known for? What should our lives look like? What should be our reputations in regard to our behavior in the church and in the world? And the point is this. Men should be known for their spiritual passion. Men should be known for their spiritual passion. Brothers, I'm, just, I'm, I'm talking with you this morning. Our lives here in this place and out in the world should be known for our spiritual devotion and passion to the Lord Jesus. What, what should be... About us. So Paul says this in verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. Now I want to point out something important about what Paul says here to our understanding and application of this passage. While this passage has to do with us today, this is not just Paul writing to Timothy back in 60 AD, and so we can look back and go, that's like nearly 2,000 years ago, and it's irrelevant for us in this moment, at this time, in this place. Well, Paul's saying this as a universal truth. He says, I desire that in every place, everywhere, whether you live in Ephesus or Rome, whether you live in Asia or Plymouth, Michigan, this is, this is true for everybody. In every place, this is here for us. What's the instruction that Paul gives? He says that men in every place should pray. Lifting holy hands. Here's a, here's a positive call to the men of the church. We should be leading and engaged in the work of prayer. Especially the kinds of prayer that Paul spoke about at the beginning of chapter 2. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. Be made for all people. For kings and for all who are in high positions. This is good and pleasing. The gospel goes out in our prayers. That's, that's what men in the church should be known for. Men of the church should be active. Engaged. Devoted to the work of prayer, and, there, and there's a posture that goes along with that. He says lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The act of lifting holy hands in, in the scriptures in, in Jewish context and in Christian context was an act or a posture of worship and dependence. It, it, was a, it was a way to lift lifting your hands was to express a need and to reach, as it were, up to heaven for assistance and devotion. It's, it's to, to, to grasp up to God and say, Lord, here I am, I am yours, Lord, provide, Lord, care, Lord, I am not strong enough in and of myself, I am not capable in and of who I am, I need you. And that's the kind of devotion that Paul is calling, the, the Holy Spirit is calling the men of the church to have, that, that we should be praying, lifting our hands, whether that's literal or not, it, it, our hearts should be reaching to the Lord. And he describes the hands as holy hands, not not hands given to immorality, not hands given to to violence and anger, but but hands that are pure, hearts that are pure, lives that are dedicated to the Lord. Scripture is calling men of the church to be known for prayer, lives of reverent godliness and holiness, depending on the Lord, calling out to the Lord. Men, Is that what you're known for? Is that what your life is shaped by? And he contrasts it then. He says, we should, men should be lifting holy hands, pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. There's a behavior that he rejects, a behavior that says, this shouldn't be a part of your life. This shouldn't be the way that you live without anger or quarreling. I, lo- I love the imagery here. The Holy Spirit is saying, "Man, you can do something with your hands. Men feel that way often. We've got to build and create and craft and, and structure Many times we use our hands, though, with closed fists. Do something with your hands, the Holy Spirit says, but don't be one who's using your fists, using your hands in a closed way to brawl and to dominate and to beat others. Be men of prayer with open hands, lifted high in dependence to heaven and to God. Be humble men crying out to the Lord, not men of quarreling and fighting and anger. That word anger there has the idea behind it of deep passion, fiery passion. Think about how Paul is instructing us here. Man, you're going to be passionate about something, but don't let your deep passion be passion against others, causing strife and violence. Be a man of passion for God. Be a man of passion for prayer and drawing near to the Lord. The question is, what are we known for, man? This is where the Scripture is critiquing and speaking against the cultural stereotypes, not only of Paul's days, but ours. And we have to ask the question, like, as he's speaking about this, we're talking about manhood. What is he, what is he speaking about? What's the definition that we, we would think of when we think of masculinity? Culturally speaking right now, there's a, there's a handful of definitions with regard to masculinity. They, they fall on a couple different spectrums, or at different ends of the spectrum. On one hand, masculinity and even femininity now are to be denied. Neither are to be affirmed. Like we should just erase maleness and femaleness, neither to be affirmed, neither to be elevated above the other or to even distinguished from each other. Gender, as society says, is a social construct, so it should be eradicated. You should be able to identify however you please. Let's just, let's just take these verses out that speak about men and women and say, no, no they, don't, they don't apply to anybody, they don't apply to everybody, they just erase the passage. That's one spe- end of the spectrum in our culture about gender and about how it's defined. On the other hand, though, for men in particular, there's a response that says, no, masculinity is important. Men should be defined as protectors and providers, warriors and kings. One modern prophet of masculinity describes it this way. He tweeted and said, the masculine perspective is you have to understand that life is war. It's a war for the female you want. It's a war for the car you want. It's a war for the money you want. It's a war for status. Masculine life is war. And before you dismiss that comment and this, this one guy who is outrageous and maybe on the fringe of culture, understand that that individual is discipling millions of men, particularly young men, teenage boys right now through the internet, more than anybody else. Name Andrew Tate, most Googled name in 2022. He had over 11.6 billion, billion with a B, views on TikTok before his account was banned for violent content. You may say, well, that's, co- that's toxic masculinity. And it is. But his perspective is how masculinity is being defined and pushed in our culture today. And how men, young men, particularly, are being discipled to live. Masculinity is war, so fight everybody who would be against you. The philosophy is that true men are fighters. They're waging the war. The war against liberalism, the war against feminism, the war against authority as a whole. So masculinity should be It's it's a wrong thing. The attempt to strip men of what is theirs, this philosophy says, is met with violence and aggressive domineering. You want an example of this? This is seen in the MMA fighter of our culture. Jordan Peterson may be the philosopher of this kind of toxic masculinity. Andrew Tate is the popularizer of it. And it's anti-Christ. What should Christian Ben be known for? Spiritual passion. Not the anger or the raging passions of a man trying to gain power by dominating his world through his competitive ability, his wealth, his strength, his cars, his being the alpha. Now Consider what what we're being called to here, man. Prayer is a humble posture. It's a posture of dependence, even weakness. Saying, "I, I don't get to do it. I can't do it. Prayer is a call to open our fists, to reach out our hands, holy hands, and to admit weakness and cry out to God for His help and power. And that's the kind of thing that we as Christians should be known for, our spiritual passion for God. Our prayer is our display of our desire and dependence for God. We're called to be the leaders in prayer, not aggressive, toxic, alpha masculinity, as the culture defines it, we reject that. But in the humble, spiritually passionate, Leadership that the Lord calls us to. I think our, our spiritual passion should look a lot like Jesus' spiritual passion. Jesus was a man. And yet he was dependent on his father and lived in communion with him and prayer. He was a humble servant. And he gave himself. Instead of taking up power through violence and domination, Jesus laid down his life. He lost power, so to speak, through his humiliation and his death. Jesus... Never validated or authorized, aggressive, violent, power-grabbing, get-what-you-want behavior. He said, if you would follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Come and follow me. Die to yourself. That's the calling that we are to have as men, spiritually passionate like Jesus' men, leading in prayer, leading in denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Now, Here's the thing that concerns me as a pastor and as a man. It's that men, Christian men today, aren't really known for our spiritual passion. Maybe we're known more for our spiritual passivity. We're known for either abdicating what it means to be a man of God or for apathy towards the things of God. But men, imagine with me. Let me just, let me just cast a vision for you of what, what the church would be like, what our lives would be like if we followed the lead of Jesus as spiritually passionate men. There'd be spiritual progress among us. Our sons, our daughters, the next generation, our wives, our communities, they'd grow up and they'd follow Jesus and they'd see his life modeled for them by the sacrificial, prayerful men of the church. Women would flourish in their lives because the men of the church aren't exploiting them, but uplifting them and causing them to grow. Discipleship would flourish all across our lives, from the youngest to the oldest. Furthermore, there would be service. The needs of the poor and the weak and the frail and the needy would be met. There would be engagement in and service in teams all around the church and in the community. We'd care more about advancing the gospel and serving the needy than when we we would be filling our own bank accounts. It would be a beautiful vision of men caring for everything. It starts by us rejecting the cultural definitions and stereotypes of what it means to be a man. And embracing the Savior, Jesus, the perfect man, and following him as spiritually passionate leaders. Men should be known in the church for their spiritual passion. Brothers, let's step up, let's lead, let's serve, let's humbly lift our hands in prayer and be the spiritually passionate leaders God has called us to be. Men should be known for their spiritual passion. But then in verse 9, Paul turns to speak to the women. And so ladies, let me, let me direct our attention here. And actually, Paul is speaking to Timothy here. So he's still speaking to a man about how he should lead the church. And he says here that women should be known for their gospel substance. Women in the church should be known for their gospel substance. So he says in verse 9, likewise, saying, just as I spoke to the men about Spiritual passion, so now I turn to women, and, and here's what you should be known for. Now, we re- need to remember the scope of what, where Paul speaks here. Just as he said in verse 8, in every place, giving the context of his comments to every church, so he carries that over into these statements in verses 9 through 15. This is true of the church everywhere. Women in the church, whether they're in Plymouth, Michigan, or Ephesus, or Rome, or Jerusalem, or wherever it is, women should be known for their gospel substance. And this is displayed in two places. First of all, externally to the world, with regard to the world, and then internally with regard to the church. So Paul addresses first the external. He's like, what are you known for, outward facing? What are the women of the world, what does the world see you as women like? He says this in verse 9, Likewise also, in every place, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what, with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Okay, I think, I think these verses are pretty safe for me right here. Culture presses in and puts emphasis on the value of what is external, right? Right? Our appearance and fashion is what culture says, that's that's what makes you valuable. For women in Ephesus and in the Roman society at large, what mattered, what defined and gave you status as a woman was your wardrobe, your fashion. The women of Paul's Paul's day in the secular context, they would go to the temples of their gods and goddesses, and Ephesus was a massive place of idol worship. And they would go to these temples in the most extreme, lavish, even sensual garments that they could in order to attract notice and attention. They wanted to be seen. And they wanted to be seen because they were devalued. They were objectified. And so they thought, if I can be seen and noticed and get the attraction of somebody, maybe my value will increase. For women in the Roman Empire, their value was considered only as much as being a sexual object for a man. So to have dignity or value or to attract notice, she's got to make a statement. And fashion was the means to make that statement so that everybody would be talking about you. Even spiritual devotion was measured by the expensive, gaudy, sensual, putting yourself out there types of fashion that that attracted attention and notice. One first century Roman philosopher, he wrote this. He said, immediately after they are 14, women are called ladies by men, And so when they see, when these women see that they have nothing else but only to be the bedfellows of men, they begin to beautify themselves and put all their hopes in that. All their hopes in getting attention and being noticed as valuable for a man's pleasure. Culturally, value had to be earned through appearance and attention. So your fashion was the way to get at it. Now, Paul was speaking against the immodesty and the attempts to earn value and attention through fashion by saying that Christian women should be known for their modesty, for their respectable apparel, apparel, and more importantly, their way of life, their self-control. The word here, self-control, is important. We might want to focus in on the, the statements of not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. That's, that's the external stuff that's out there that Paul was saying, these were how women were being uh, using fashion to attract attention. And Paul's saying, let, let discount all of the fashion stuff and go for the, the spiritual stuff, the stuff of content, this, this idea of self-control. Paul used this word again at the end of the paragraph to form kind of a bookend section. The word self-control here could literally be translated soundness of mind. Or the exercise of care and intelligence appropriate to circumstances. It really has the idea of wisdom, of knowing how to, to navigate and live in the world in a godly, superior, uh, Im- mo- superior moral, holy life. It's this idea of a sage woman who's respected and honored, not just for her looks, but for, for her heart, for the Lord, for her mind, for her... For her self-control and her diligence. Paul here is saying that women should not be known for her external passions and attire, but for her deep soundness of heart and godliness, which are exhibited, he says at the end of verse 9 or verse 10, with good works. Notice verse 10. He says, Women, I want you to, to live and be known in such a way, adorn yourself. With what is proper for women who profess godliness. So, so, the proclamation of your lips, what you profess godliness, should be met with a life that displays that, with this self control or this, this wise, sage life that's exhibited in good works. Later in chapter five, Paul will talk about the kinds of good works that faithful widows have displayed. He says these faithful widows, they have a reputation for good works. The good works are they've brought up their children and shown hospitality, they've washed the feet of the saints. They've cared for the afflicted. They've devoted themselves to every good work. Now, that's not a complete or some total list of good works. But the example here that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 5.10 is an example in the life of a widow of what good works and soundness of mind, the self-control that he's talking about, really look like. I want us to see, I hope you can grasp here how Paul is actually elevating the unique dignity of women here. Against the cultural expectation that women should be sex objects, plastic Barbie dolls that are merely about external appearance and fashion, nothing more, Scripture gives women new dignity, They be people of spiritual maturity and substance. They, they should pursue virtue, including wisdom, godliness, the fruit of the Spirit, and these virtues should be on display in the godly way they live their lives. Simply put, Paul is saying, focus more on how you live than on what you look like. That's the instruction for a woman as she engages and lives outwardly in the community. But then Paul turns and says there's an outward look, but what about inwardly? What about in the church? And this is where he turns and speaks in verses 11 through 15. Now, let me just say before I start to explain these verses that our tendency is going to be to impress our cultural values and lenses on these verses. We're going to hear them. We've heard them already, but we're going to hear them through the bias of our time. And it's going to sound like something we should reject. There has been no shortage of controversy, especially in the last 50 years, over what these verses mean and how they should be applied. So as we come to God's word, we have a decision to make. Will we submit ourselves and stand under the authority of God's Word and receive what He says? Or will we stand over God's Word and decide whether we like it or not and whether we'll affirm it or not? We need to listen with humility here. Now, here's the challenging thing that Paul says, at least culturally to us today, in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 11. In the context of the church, God opens the door all of a sudden for something that was unheard of for women in the Greco-Roman culture the education of women. Catch the positive thing he is saying to Timothy. Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, here's how you to order and lead the church, and guess what? Timothy, let the women learn. Let them be educated. Let them grow in the Bible. Let them get Bibles and hear the teaching and and be equipped and grow and engaged. Timothy, women are to be dignified. They have value. They have intellects and hearts that, that can love and follow and know Jesus, so train them, teach them, let them, let them learn. Furthermore, he says, let them learn in quietness. Now that doesn't mean that women should just be silent in church, say nothing, raise no questions, no woman could talk ever, just be mute. Paul is talking about the environment for their learning. He's speaking against the cultural contrast. When you went into these temples, everybody was shouting and yelling, and the teaching was just all over the place. And Paul says, That's not how it should be in the church. When you gather together as a church, there should be a spirit or a reality of order and quietness. There should be shouting matches, one group talking over another, chaos in the teaching of scriptures. There should be someone preaching and teaching, and in an environment where everybody can learn, even women. Did the early church have preachers? Absolutely. And this is what they practiced. The scriptures were read and taught so that everybody, men, women, young people, everybody could grow in their knowledge of what God says and draw near to the Lord. So so scripture here is saying that women should be able to come to the gathering of the church undisturbed, unencumbered, undistracted, no catcalls, no denigration, be lifted up and dignified so that they can learn the scriptures as they are taught. This is, this is contrary to what's happening in the world today. If you, if you look at the Middle Eastern uh, cultures, the Taliban in Afghanistan, women are excluded from education and learning in the universities. In the Muslim world, in places like Iran, they've shut women out of education. Christianity, though, distinct, it opens the doors for women to learn. It dignifies women. And Paul speaks here in the posture of, of how a woman should learn. Let a woman learn quietly in the room of quietness where there's a place for her to learn with all submissiveness. That's true for all of us. That's, that is, as the Bible is taught, women and men should be humble and receive the word. That, isn't that how we should approach the Bible? Yes, Lord, this is what you say. We'll believe it. We'll trust it. We'll follow you. Again, dignity is provided to women. They aren't just chattel for men to dominate and objectify. Women aren't just baby factories to supply workers for a man's empire. Women, you're image bearers of the Lord God. You should be allowed to grow and learn as disciples of Jesus, being trained and educated in His Word. Women, be learners. Be theologians. Know the grace and the wisdom of God. Be wise in counsel and in your way of life. Be encouraged to press into knowing God and learning. The church should provide the environment for you to come and grow in your faith and knowledge of God and the Word. This is probably another reason why men, we should be downstairs serving with children more often. So that our wives and the women of this church can learn in an unencumbered way. Men, your wife probably spends most of the time with your kids. How about you take the lead and serve downstairs once in a while so she can come up here and be refreshed by the Scriptures. And you adults who don't have children, help out. Be a part of the team. Retirees especially. Please don't have the I did my time mentality and decide that you can opt out of serving. Like I paid my dues and now I get a break. Jesus never said lay down your life and follow me until you hit retirement. And then you've got a free ride on the way to heaven. We should all be involved. Help these younger families. Help these younger Christians. Help these women make an impact in the next generation. Let's leave a legacy that will outgrow our moment. Women can't be known for gospel substance if they don't have a space for gospel training. It should be here in the midst of the church. Which then leads Paul to talk to Timothy about the order and structure of who is leading the church. Now Here's where we get into the tricky verses, where this passage connects with chapter 3. We'll get into chapter 3 next week about who leads the church and what qualifies them to do so. But if the church is to provide a space and environment for women to learn and grow alongside men, we have, ask the, we have to ask the question, who's leading that environment? Paul tells Timothy in verse 12, it should be a qualified man. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So in the church, in the public gathering is what he's speaking of, in the context like this. The prohibition is that a woman should not be the one teaching and exercising authority as the leader over the congregation. I have two terms here the term to teach and the term to exercise authority, those two are connected. They are two distinct yet shared responsibilities. Teaching or preaching is instruction, it's preaching. And exercising authority goes along with that. It's the, the teaching of the Word of God with authority to give leadership and oversight to the church. Those are the responsibilities that are given and entrusted to the elders of the church. That's why in chapter 3, verse 1, what we'll see the next phrase next week, Paul talks about the office of an elder or an overseer or a pastor, it's the same term, and the qualifications for a man to serve that office. Simply put, the role of a pastor or elder is a role that is only open to men. Instead, Paul says, Timothy, you make a place and you make it so that women at the gatherings can come and learn there to remain quiet. And that's a brusque translation. Literally, it should be, she should be in quietness. Again, it's about the environment. A woman should be able to come, to learn, to grow, to worship, to believe, because there's order and stillness for her to be able to do so. She should be able to come and learn because she has dignity, because she is respected and not objectified, but given space and opportunity to listen and receive. Now, why? That's the big question, right? What's Paul's logic in this? Why does he say, I don't, why does scripture say, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain in quietness. Why does Scripture prohibit women from being elders in the church? In Verses 13 through 15, we get the logic, the reason behind. And Paul isn't just making that stuff on his own. He actually uses the Scripture to make his case and this point from Scripture itself. He wants Timothy to lead well in Ephesus and to create this environment and this space where women can grow in dignity and gospel substance by their faith. I think these verses here in 13 through 15 are really a poetic piece of Scripture. Paul takes us back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. and He kind of makes up a poem, at least in my mind he does, based on what Scripture says. So here's the poetry of it. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, that she will be saved through childbearing. i follow the reasoning and the logic here with me. Verse 13 Adam was formed first, then Eve, sets up the created, God-given order and responsibility, use that word, responsibility of male leadership. Adam was formed first, then Eve. God gave responsibility to Adam as the first human creation. Adam and men, by that extension, bear the responsibilities of being the one to care over, to lead, to provide, to protect, and to cause the flourishing of his wife. The man must be the one to create space for gospel substance for his wife. But first, verse 14, So verse 13 shows the order, the responsibility of male leadership. Verse 14 shows that if that order or that responsibility is neglected, brokenness comes. So he says Adam wasn't deceived, and the implication there is that Adam wasn't deceived first, but the woman was deceived first and became a transgressor. Things are out of order now. Why was he deceived? That might be the question. And there's a couple options that are offered. One is from culture, and the other is from the gospel. Option one, the cultural option is, well, women, weaker vessels, right? Women are, by nature are more gullible and susceptible to false teaching, and so therefore they shouldn't be, false, or they shouldn't be elders or teachers. That's the cultural option. Hold on to that one. Option two, Adam didn't do his job leading. He didn't do his job teaching. He didn't do his job protecting He didn't do his job in working for gospel substance for his wife. Now, let me show you how option one, the cultural option, is dead wrong. If option one were correct, we would be saying that there's something wrong with women inherently, that there isn't wrong with men. If we say that because women are, the cultural reason, because women are supposedly the weaker vessel and more gullible, we would say that women and men don't possess the same intellect, discernment, and capacity for learning. And, and furthermore, we would say if women are more susceptible to false teaching than men, and that's the reason they shouldn't be teaching, then why in the world would we let women teach anybody, especially our children and other women? Do you see it there? It's so dumb. Women, you're not the weaker vessel in intellect and in capacity and wisdom and knowledge. Let the Scriptures affirm your dignity. You are Dignified, God-image-bearing women. The problem is the men didn't do their jobs. The responsibility, Paul's logic is the man, Adam, he didn't do his job and the woman fell because of it. He failed in his responsibility. She was the victim of cunning lies. The rest of the scriptures always point the blame at Adam. Which leads to the last line of the poem. Verse 13, God sets up the order. Verse 14 shows that the responsibility when it's out of order, when men don't lead and care and provide, brokenness comes. Verse 15 shows that God redeems. God redeems by taking responsibility himself and giving a leader. And so he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now notice the pronoun here. It's a singular pronoun, she. Paul's talking about Eve, she, she. Paul's not saying that women in general are saved by bearing children or that your value or dignity as a woman is tied to having children. The reference Paul is making here is still in Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 15 particularly. Remember God came into the garden after they had sinned and they were hiding and he he spoke to Adam and Eve, he confronted their sin. God never cursed Eve in that passage. Yet he said to her, one of the results of the fall would be that she would have multiplied pain and childbearing. And and what Scripture says here is that it is through childbearing, through the pain of childbearing, that the curse would be lifted. Remember what God said, in the curse, God said to Satan, the deceiver, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he, this offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head. It was the child born of the woman who would come and deal a final blow to Satan and his offspring. So God sent his son, born of a virgin, Jesus Christ, who came and suffered and died for our sins. Do you see the point here? Jesus came and took responsibility for seeing that women are esteemed with great value, that women are given great dignity, that women flourish in knowing and walking with him. Think about the gospel stories. Jesus had women around him all the time, and he uplifted all of them. He gave them space to learn. He He dignified them. Jesus took the responsibility that Adam abdicated, and he taught women and elevated them above their cultural stereotypes and systems. And Jesus sets things back in order. This is the gospel good news. He sets things back in order by leading the way and calling men to lead and to serve and oversee so that women flourish, so that everybody flourishes, but particularly so that women are able to go deep in gospel substance. That's why the church is to be led by elders who are men. The gospel order itself so that all can flourish. Now, let me bring it full circle. How do women go after gospel substance and depth? It's the last line of verse 15. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, which, by the way, is universal for all of us. How do we grow in gospel substance and depth? Faith, trusting the Lord and His Word, banking our life on Him, love, Faith develops love, it's how how we relate to God and to one another in the world. Christ loved us and forms in us and creates in us a life of love and love for all people. And holiness, set-apartness, sanctification, and Christ-likeness. And he says, with self-control. Right back to where he started. That, That word, that key virtue, sage wisdom, appropriateness, and intellect for the certain circumstances of life. Now, let me come back to all of this. This is what men and women in the church should be known for. Men, spiritual passion. Women, gospel substance. It's what our reputation should be. Our cultural narratives and stereotypes about women, men and women distort that truth, don't they? they? They give us extreme views and distorted views of our gender or our attempts. They attempt to erase all difference between us at all. Friends, discount the lies. Christian men and women should be known for their gospel-centered behavior. And we should reject those cultural stereotypes. So men, don't bank your life on being a warrior man and an alpha male who goes and gets what he wants and aggressively dominates his world. Bank your life on Christ who humbly came and served and suffered and died. Be a man of spiritual passion and prayer. Women, don't believe your value and worth as a result of your appearance or your external looks. Bank your life on Christ who died to set things right And to give you status and dignity and worth in his household, in his community. Be a woman of gospel substance and wisdom. The church should be known for its spiritual passion and for its gospel substance. And our roles as men and women should play out in a church that is eager and passionate for the things of God. And going deeper in the reality of the gospel itself. This is what we should be known for in our behavior.